getting impacted by two buses at the same time on either side of me at high speed which in Indonesia which scared the life out of me one going one way and one going the other way me 40 miles an hour and as the other bus came the other way I had no choice but to squeeze into the bus I was overtaking and look, luckily I had met very industrial pannier frames which took the brunt of the impact to be honest and protecting my legs but uh they really took deep gouges out of the, the trucks, the coaches going in opposite directions. That, yeah, that was probably the, the gnarliest uh, heart-in-my-mouth moment. Episode 47, Nathan Millward, Adventure Motorcycle Travel. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Thanks for tuning in to another Adventure Sports Podcast episode. This is your host, Travis Parsons. Our guest today is Nathan Millward. Nathan needed to get back to England from Australia, but didn't really like taking the conventional way of flying. So he picked up an old postal carrier bike and with only a few days of preparation, launched out on his journey home, which took him through 18 countries, covering 23,000 miles. Nathan, welcome to the program. Uh, Hi, Travis. How are you, mate? Well? I'm doing very well. Thanks for asking. So give us a little bit of background on why you were in Australia and needed to get back to England. What kicked off this whole idea of getting this bike and riding it all the way back? Uh, I guess it, desperation as much as anything, really. Um, <laughs> I had been in Australia for nine months, uh, just working, kind of cash in hand while I was on a tourist visa, actually. I'd, I'd gone there for a girl, and um, I guess things uh, were wrapping up in that regard. Things weren't really working out. And, the visa situation, I couldn't get a permanent visa to stay any longer. Um, and so immigration were on my case about having to leave. Uh, so it, it, I didn't have any chances, any choice about leaving. I had to leave. I had a flight to, that I could have caught to take me home. But to, I also had this old Australian postal bike, which is a, a 105cc uh, Honda uh, that the postal service use over there to deliver the mail. So I had one of those. I bought it on eBay and... Uh, I thought, well, rather than fly home, I'll, I'll set off on the bike and see how far I get. Um, and I decided to do it on the Thursday and left on the Sunday. Wow. And just made it up from there. Yeah, so it was a, it was like a spur of the moment. If I don't do it now, I'll never do it kind of decision, really. Um, and I, I, the time frame I had with the visa expiring, it only gave me sort of two weeks, just over two weeks to get to, uh, to the other side of Australia to catch the boat to East Timor. So <laughs> it was cow. a case of choose to do it and then go and then um, j- just stick at it really. So I guess it was complete opposite to what most people w- would do with a big trip. I, I plan and prepare and pack with, I was like, right, I've got to go in three days. What do I need? I need to- a few tools. I need, need a bit of something to carry in a bit of camping gear. And, and then that's it. Um, I mean, fortunately uh, the long story is that I, I'd already thought about riding to Australia from England. So in my mind, I already had a, a rough idea of the route, the plan, the documentation, the issues that I might face. So, so in fairness, in my mind, I already had it. I was already ready to go. I just needed the the decisive moment to, to make it happen. So, yeah, uh, but yeah, still. Just circumstances. <laughs> yeah, I guess. It's, I mean, it's most people I, most people decide to do a spur of the moment trip. You know, thinking, well, it's Thursday. I maybe I'll go for the weekend on Friday, and I'll I'll travel a few hundred miles away from home. But you decided to travel uh, across many countries. Uh, to get home on a spur of the moment that's pretty that's pretty amazing yeah like i said i was desperate you know i just i had uh, grown increasingly frustrated and i guess angry with the situation i was in in australia with things not really not working out with the visa and the relationship so i was just full of so much frustration i think and that's why i couldn't get on a plane and fly him because i would have landed in england with no job no no nothing and just been completely um I think angry with the world. So instead of doing that, I, I got on this bike and I just rode, you know, just rode and rode. And I, I kind of ride into um, just stay sane, I suppose, at that time. I ride into to get away from something and to hopefully get to get to a better place. So it was a very much a, uh, I don't know, just a, a ride of desperation, really, just to take the road and, and see what I encountered and. Uh, but yeah, I loved it. I mean, I loved t- there were some real roller coaster moments, but 
overall it was a it was a good experience. Yeah, I'll bet. Man, what a way to clear your head. I can understand. Yeah. I can relate. You know, you hop on a plane, you just scoot over to to London, and you're there. You you're still dwelling on the situation, whatnot, and it's still on your mind. But you take this. Uh, what did it take you? Nine months, something like that, yeah, to, to get home. Exactly. I mean, yeah, anybody that rides a motorcycle <laughs> understands, you, know, you just get out there, you can get out there for 30 minutes or an hour and clear your head. And uh, I think nine months would probably do it for me as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I love the simplicity of it. I've gone from so much complication with the visas and things, and the relationship, and then obviously getting on the road, I'd never done anything like this before. So it was, it was a real, uh, I suppose, gamble in a sense. And um, financially, I wasn't really in a position to do it. But again, I, I just had to do it regardless of finances and time and I thought it'd take me five months and it, it took me nine. But uh, yeah, I mean, what I loved about the trip is that once you're out on the road and once I left Sydney and was riding, it was it's just a very simple linear task of every day trying to get as far as you can and, and trying to overcome whatever bureaucratic obstacle or physical border or water, water crossing or whatever. So it was, it's a, it was just a very simple lifestyle for those nine months. Yeah, it was, yeah, great. It was a great, simple challenge, I think that's that's what I got out of it. Yeah. Well, you say simple, but I mean, you know, dealing with all the carnets and passage into to various countries is no simple task. How did you deal with that? Having a, you know, this being a spur of the moment decision to go, you just, just took it one day at a time and just. Yeah. yeah one country at a time, really. I mean, the, the first obstacle was, the, you know, the third day, the bike, the engine on the, on the bike, I set off on going, going wrong. The bottom end had gone. So the decision to replace the bike with a, a more reliable, post postal bike um and then realizing that the, the road across the outback was closed and whether it would open in time to, to allow me to get the boat in time for a visa and, and then get into darwin and get in a boat east timor so and then indonesia malaysia thailand um then finding a way from over burma into into nepal and then when i couldn't get any, a, a visa for iran it was out to get around iran so through northern pakistan into china kyrgyzstan and so it was almost it was always just one step at a time. It was one country at a time, and uh, I, like I say, that's why I think it was a very simple linear challenge because it was uh, it was no every day it was just how to how to progress how to progress really how to get further. And I mean, I do I do stupid hours. I do fourteen hours as a norm and twenty hours if I really felt like pushing on. I suppose I just could ride. I could ride because I I never got tired of riding. Uh, right the bike would do about 40 miles an hour if that maybe 37 40 miles an hour so at that speed you're not you're not getting uh exhausted by by the speed of the bike the performance of the bike so i'd just sit there for all those hours in a day just i don't know like being sat on a sofa that happened to be <laughs> passaging through all these amazing places so yeah, there's um, nothing better than a moving sofa moving through the yeah, world yeah that's kind of a <laughs> very comfortable seat and and that was it it was uh there was some very difficult moments um, crossing from Indonesia into Malaysia. That's really a really tricky part, just because there's no there's no shipping ferries for vehicles. So trying to find someone who could take a bike on a on a on a boat that was awkward. And then obviously getting over Burma because uh, Burma still uh, the borders are, you couldn't pass through one border and out go out the other side because it's a military military country militarized state. Right. So you have to uh, you know finding a plane to take you over. Uh, from Bangkok to Kathmandu, which is not ideal, you know, leaving the, the leaving the wheels off off the ground, but uh, it's kind of the only only way around Burma. Um, uh, I mean, you can go through China, but um, you need, for China, you need if you're on a motorized vehicle through China, you need a guide and things like that. So, yeah, yeah. I, like I say, it was just it was just figuring it out one one step at a time, really. Yeah, that's great. So. Tell our listeners a little bit more about the bike you chose. In the Western world, you know, we all look at the big BMWs and, you know, the Triumphs and KTMs and, you know, big thousand cc or more motorcycles to do trips like this. That's what we're used to seeing. So you chose something that was 105 cc's. This is a pretty small bike. Yeah, um, I think the bike chose me in, in, a, in a weird way. I, it's, and it's it's the only bike I could afford, even if I wanted a bigger bike, I couldn't have afforded one at the time. And and I suppose a lot of people say that, you know, why that bike? Why not something bigger? But, you know, speed is is the least of, of all priorities on a big trip, especially when you're not really against the clock. I didn't need to travel fast. What I did need was a, a reliable bike 
I needed one that was fuel efficient. I needed one that was light to um, to put on a plane or on a boat. I needed some, like I say, something reliable uh, because I was no mechanic when I set off. I needed something incredibly simple. So in every area bar speed, that bike was absolutely perfect. Comfort, it was great. And also the interaction it enabled me to have with local people was great as well because oh, in, in places like Indonesia, Thailand, Pakistan, India, most of the locals were on better bikes than I was on. So <laughs> right. that kind of, you know, in gray, it, it warms them to you. There's no intimidation about what you're on and what you're riding. And it also allowed me to wear, I just, I just riding Converse uh, high tops and shorts, train, um, shorts, t-shirt and an open face helmet. I, I didn't need any really uh, or, um, protective gear or anything. So I didn't, didn't have all that to go with it. I didn't have the image. I didn't have the, I didn't have the, I didn't have any expensive gear to buy. I just rode in what I had. And so that bike was, it was a perfect bike for that trip. If I was to do that trip again tomorrow, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't take that bike. But uh, at that, uh, where I was at that stage in life with the money I had and the time I had, it, yeah, I couldn't have picked a better bike really. Even things like tires, getting tires for a bike in large parts of Asia, it's very difficult if you've got a wheel size that doesn't match what they, the guys there are riding. Whereas the posted bike uses a 17-inch wheel like every scooter in Asia. So getting a tire was like three, four dollars fitted on every street corner from Indonesia to you know to Pakistan, Kyrgyzstan. So and liters of oil getting a regular doing oil changes was very easy. I needed one liter of 10 foot uh, 1040, and uh, that you could get that everywhere. Uh, so so yeah, it's it looks like a novelty machine, but actually it's not. And the reality is the people doing the trips across Asia are not doing it on big expensive new bikes because they don't have the reliability and the robustness of the older machine. I think that's a great shame about new technology. It's 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 far advanced in terms of performance and, and things like that. But in terms of durability and reliability, we just, we're getting worse and worse machines because they're all built on a lower budget to lower tolerances and a lot more electronic reliance and so much to go wrong in places like Pakistan where you know, you're not going to get somebody who can fit, fix a BMW in Pakistan. Your BMW breaks down in Pakistan, and then your trip's over. You, know, you break down on a, a 105cc motorbike with a lawnmower engine, what it effectively is, and you're always going to get parts. You're always going to get people who can do something with it. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I don't, maybe we'll get onto it, but I, I later did the, use the same bike to go across America, and that was probably a mistake, you know, a 105cc bike from New York to Alaska. <laughs> I was a bit slow, you know, that kind of, I maybe did wish for a bit more power. And obviously being in North America, then you've got the service network to go with a big bike. And the, the posty bike was way out of its depths in, in North America. But uh, India, Pakistan, it was it was perfect, perfect bike. Yeah, absolutely. I think you make some awesome points there. Um, you have you have the big bikes that I speak of that we all see as these are the adv- around the world adventure bikes, but you're right. They have ABS, they have traction control, they have everything electronic that can go wrong. When the bike's running, it's running great. But when you need to fix it, you're, you're in a world of hurt. You're getting parts oh, yeah. blown in. Uh, the fuel economy is less, just like you said, the tires are more, uh, there's just a lot of headaches that come with it. The value of the bike is more. So now your carnet goes up, you know, a lot of that stuff. And, uh, man, you, you really make me consider, I mean, I have motorcycles and, you know, nothing extravagant, but it makes me want to kind of get one of these posty bikes or, <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, over here we would see a, uh, um, oh, like a Honda Cub. Uh, no, you guys have got them. You've got the trail. They're basically the same as a Trail 90, which which are in North America had in yeah. great quantities in the 60s, 70s. So you, yeah. you guys have got them there. They go, we do. In fun. fact, my first street legal bike was a, um, I don't think they called it a CT, but it was the 70cc. Uh, very, very similar. Um, same, yeah. you know, same engine, just, uh, just bored a little bit differently. And yeah, that thing had a top speed of 40 or 50 and you'd have to get behind a semi just to, just to peg the needle, you know, but yeah, but I, know. I can relate. The bike is, it was so comfortable. It was just like sitting on a couch. There was nothing there. There's nothing to break. It's so simple and so light. I can see going across this country on that. You'd have to have to stick to the, uh, the local highways, not the interstate. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I mean, and I'm coming from this. I now own a GS, a GS 1200. I saw uh, that's that. the bike. I, yeah, so that's the bike I've got now, and I use that, and and it's a great bike. You know, it's a perfect bike for for near enough every occasion, and I use it off road quite a bit. And 
know, for UK, and I'm even thinking of doing an American trip on that. That would be perfect. But again, would I take it to, would I ride it to, to Australia? And I probably couldn't afford to. I mean, 6,000 mile service intervals. It's the bike's only done 5,000 miles and it had to, new, had to have new brake uh, disc on the rear and pads all round. Right. A BMW dealer, they wanted 500, you know, 500 pounds for that. So factoring, like you say, the carnet price, the fuel costs, it would, my trip would have cost probably like twice, if not three times, no, not twice at least to do the trip on a, on a GS plus the price of the bike. And, um, I think what, what holds a lot of people back and what holds me back on now I've got GS is it's on finance. You know, I'm a, I can't afford to take a bike on finance on an adventure. Because if I, if it gets nicked or broken or whatever, then I've still got to pay for something I no longer own or no longer have. So I, I think having a bike that you can afford to lose is, is essential for a really beyond the limit adventure. That's yeah, fun. absolutely. Yeah. Well, the best bike, uh, the best bike for you is the bike in your garage or the bike you can afford. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so you you had a name for this bike. It was called Dorothy. How did that come about? Uh, Dorothy. Well, it was a it was a previous owner, um, a, a chap in his fifties who'd, uh, I think he'd had some mental anguish in his life, and he, he'd bought this postal bike uh, and kitted it out for touring the outback on. So he'd fitted a bigger tank off an XR two fifty and. Uh, seat uh, a lambswool seat cover and a few other bits and bobs and uh, he'd done quite a bit of outback touring on this bike and named it dorothy after his favorite character from a wizard of oz and then when uh, he sold it to the bike shop which i eventually bought it from you know the owner said well you know the previous owner called it dorothy and and that kind of i suppose that's what stuck really and uh, that's what i went along with that and she did seem a bit of a dorothy a bit slow a bit you know ponderous not the quickest bike. Um, I don't know. I just stuck with it. And it's strangely, I found uh, people warm to the fact that the bike had got a name. It was a bit weird. People even now will email me saying, how's Dorothy? Or if I put a picture up of the poster bike, they'll say, oh, is that Dorothy? Or if I put a picture of the GS, they'll say, is Dor- you know, Dorothy will get jealous. <laughs> kind of weird. Um, weird people will take to heart this. Uh, um, I can't think of the word. When you, know, when you give an inanimate object a human name and character right but people have sort of stuck and run with it more than i have it's uh that's quite strange but i mean out there on the road when you're alone the your bike is your only companion and yeah you do start to give it a character and identity and i even give it a voice i'd be riding along for hours having a conversation with myself you know the bike um just between myself and uh, with this strange voice i got for this bike um yeah i mean you go mad on the road well i did anyway for nine months on the road just you in the road it's a, it does send you to a weird old place yeah but it's a sane you know, madness yeah i think this is, yeah sane madness not a complete <laughs> madness um i mean i've still got the bike the bike's in the garage now and i, I only got it running again for the first time in about six months uh, the other day and took it for a spin round and yeah it still runs all right um, it's done ninety five thousand kilometers now uh, has it really? shipped it back? Yeah, I shipped it back from Alaska when I after I got there, and uh, yeah, just, I'm not I don't ride it very much at all, to be honest. Just, um, just just occasionally. Well, now you got to keep Dorothy around for nostalgia's sake, and uh, and I have to say, any podcast listeners whose name is Dorothy, uh, Nathan <laughs> means no harm. He's just simply saying you're a gentle soul. Is that right? You are a gentle soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just want to clear that one up. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. So you went through 18 countries on this trip from Australia back to London. What would you say was your favorite country to pass through? Uh, favorite country? I think Australia takes some beating, really. I mean, the vastness of the outback is is unmatched anywhere I went, really. The, the remoteness of some of those places, those homesteads where you'll, you get the fuel from. I mean, there's, there's, there was nowhere else like it on that trip. Um, and I did, I did love Australia. I'd love to go back and, and do some more touring through the outback. It's it's just a, a strange sense of you being the only person there. The road runs straight for hundreds of miles, and you you might see a passing car coming the other direction, you know, three or four an hour or something like that. It's uh, it's surreal but amazing. It's, it's such a, a vast place. I also enjoyed. Um, I think the ones I enjoy and remember most fondly are the ones where I had most trouble or most most issue. Uh, East Timor. I've got a lot of fond memories of East Timor. That's a country 
now an independent country at the end of Indonesia. It was formerly part of Indonesia and uh, found its independence in 99. There's been a lot of tensions since with Indonesia, uh, reluctantly giving, the, giving it up. And uh, when I got there, there's still a lot of UN forces there, a lot of aid agencies there. Uh, and I, I found it fascinating, really. Uh, and I wasn't the most comfortable traveler at that point. I was still very nervous about being out there on my, alone on a bike. So I was a little bit uh, uh, tense and paranoid, I'd say. But uh, just really fond memories of the people there and Indonesia. Indonesia, the people, are, it's a great place to travel. There's a real good traveling spirit. There's a lot of great um, motorcycle clubs as well there to, to help you out. And then where else? Uh, uh, Pakistan's memorable just because for, you know, for, every, for everything you hear about it, for all you hear about it, it's 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 just another country. It's just another uh, nation of people who've, who treat you no differently to any other country you pass through. So it was a, a real eye-opener because uh, I'd never been to any of these countries before. And obviously the perception of all these countries and what's going to happen to you in all these countries. Um, so to go through Pakistan and just find the, be a subway sandwich shop or uh, Caltex petrol station or KFC, kind of surreal. Uh, and it was a real eye for, for me, really. Kazakhstan also, that was interesting. Just again, how vast and empty that was. Almost like a 2,000 mile road across it with no, with nothing along that road. Just occasional gas stations and uh, towns and things like that, but, but really nothing. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, there's so many countries, aren't there? So many amazing places, uh, really. And, uh, Thailand also, because just because the people were amazing. So many g- gifts from people in Thailand. Just people who'd pull up alongside me uh, on the road and give me a jacket or buy me a meal, just without even wishing for a thank you or anything. Just, just generosity. And I, I think that's a, that's what surprised me most about putting myself out there. And so it's what many would consider a risky situation, putting, being alone in the world. But I never encountered anybody who, who wished me any harm. I just met a lot of good people, a lot of people who'd help me out when I needed it, or uh, just be pleasant and friendly. And yeah, it's a it's a shame, it's a shame we create such a negative impression of the world from a safety of our own homes. But when you get out there, it's a, it's, it's kind of a, it's not we're not we're not it's not a bad it's not a bad a place as we we lead ourselves to believe. I don't think really. Yeah, I think what happens is we're told about the worst in society, but if we get out and let our guard down, we actually meet the best in society on these types of trips. I think you pretty much just described that. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, a, it's a strange con- conflict, really, because I suppose some of these people who are really nice could actually be really na- nasty people. You know, they might be really nasty to their wives or, or, or cousins or neighbors. I mean, you might, meet, you might actually be meeting really awful people. But as a stranger, when you meet them, I don't know. It kind of bring out, brings out the best in them, perhaps. The, the fact that nobody treats you with any ill intent and they want to give you everything they've got. Um, I don't know. Maybe they want to be on the best behavior when they see this strange foreigner on a motorbike coming through. I don't, I don't know. Uh, it, it's, I, I don't know. But I find it fascinating, uh, the, the world when you're passing through it at such a slow speed. It's, uh, and people, uh, people, are world, uh, people of the world are fascinating. And I don't think we're really... I don't know. We don't. We don't really know the world as much as we think we do. We've got so much interaction with it through the media, but we don't actually know it half as much as we think. Uh, and I know it probably. I feel like I know it even less now. I've been seeing a lot of it than I did before when I thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That confused me even more. The problem is now that you get out to see it a little bit, you realize how much you were missing, and there's probably you know that much more out there that that we haven't seen. Yeah, yeah. I suppose unless you travelled forever, you'd never see it. You'll you'll never see any. You know, you'll never see all of it. I suppose. You take the time to prepare for an adventure, planning where you want to go, learning strategies to get there, and connecting with experts to guide you. Right. Shouldn't the adventure into college and career receive the same kind of in-depth research and attention? Off Trail on Purpose provides individualized coaching and data-driven guidance to help clients from 15 to 25 years of age start their adventure into adulthood with confidence. When so many people are feeling lost, you can have the sense of direction. Get started at www.offtrailonpurpose.com.
Neil Bailey, motor journalist, world traveler, and star of Neil Bailey Rides, founded Wellspring International Outreach in 2008 to help the abandoned children in Peru and throughout the world. Follow Neil's two-wheeled adventure travels at www.neilbaileyrides.com and his altruistic adventures at www.wellspring-outreach.org. Wellspring International Outreach is a 501c3 charity that needs your help to continue its work. Please consider a donation. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Will you help us spread the word about the show? First, tell your friends to give us a listen. You can also help us out by taking a minute and going into iTunes to subscribe, then rate and leave us a review. Thanks for being a part of our show. So why would you encourage people to let their guard down and take a trip like this? Well, because I, I suppose uh, if that's, I would never actively encourage it, I suppose, but I would never discourage it. People who do these things don't really need inspiration from others. If it's in them to do it, they'll do it. And I don't think it's any, I, I never actively encourage anybody to, to, to do it if they, because they'll do it if they want to do it. And there's a lot of people talk about wanting to do it, but they don't actually want to do it. They just like talking about doing it. So I'm not, I, it's not my place to try and actively encourage anybody reluctant. It's like getting somebody to learn to ride a motorcycle. Now it's not. I don't find feel it's my. It's not my responsibility to encourage anybody to ride a motorbike. Well, I think if you have somebody that's kind of on the verge and they have a curiosity about this type of travel or they have a curiosity about riding motorcycles, I'm always going to encourage somebody to try. If you want to try, yeah, let me let me help you over that hump and get you on a motorcycle. Try it because you'll absolutely love it. And I think this this type of travel is the same way. You know, I, people are interested, so they start reading books like yours. And then, you know, and then they might need a little bit of encouragement to actually get over that hump and go out and do it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think what I'm more inclined to do is to provide people with the resources in which to be able to do it should they have already decided that's for them. Uh, so I, what, what I've been sending out with my book is a, is, a, is a brief guide that I put together on how to do your own motorcycle adventures. So, so it's there. You know, the data, the data, the information is there, the step-by-step planning. I, I, I'll put that out there, and I guess – that's, that's as much as I can do. I, I can help people if they're serious about doing it. I mean, but it's, ultimately, it's a dangerous act in what, what, what we're engaging in. So I don't feel like I, I don't want to encourage anybody to, into going into danger. It's up to them to decide if they want to take that risk or not. It's up to them to decide whether to jump off that cliff and set the chance on a big trip. It's not. I think it's that it's that their person's responsibility to do it, not 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 mine or anybody else's. And trip, big trips don't come easily. You don't come for free. You, you, what you lose, what you gain, you lose. Uh, so um, I, I encourage with not with reluctance, but with uh, moderation, I suppose. Sure. Yeah, you don't want anybody blindly jumping into it. Well, you brought up uh, putting a book out there about uh, you know tips and, and advice. Uh, what are a couple of pieces of advice that you would have for somebody? You know, say they've gotten over that hump and they they are going to go. They're ready. They've bought the bike or they're getting ready to buy the bike. What are the a couple of important pieces of, pieces of advice that you would give them? I'd say don't overplan it. Don't don't over don't overthink it. I wouldn't say don't overplan it. I mean, you've got to know. You've got to know where those visas are. You're going to get those visas. You know what? You've got to know what borders are going to be an issue. You've got to know what countries are going to be an issue. But don't try and meticulously plan it, which is what I'm. I'll get emails from people saying, "I'm thinking of doing a trip like yours in three years' time." But well, what are you going to start doing? In th- what are you going to do between now and then? What What can you actually plan? You don't need to plan anything. Just start looking at forums. Start getting on Horizons Unlimited. Um, uh, what's the, the American one? I forgot its name. Um, ADB rider. And... Yeah, get on ADB rider. Start just getting a feel for the kind of issues that you might have, and, and increase your knowledge, not necessarily your planning, just your knowledge and uh, your confidence with with the carnet system and things like that. So, when the time comes, you, you're ready to go. And I guess uh, another piece of advice is you'll never take everything you need and 
you'll always forget something. You'll always take more than you need. And it's just a case of being flexible on the road. Having access to money, obviously, is crucial. And if you take, if you've forgot something that you need, then just buy it. And if you're carrying something you don't need, then then ditch it. Try to travel as light as you pos- as possible. Really, I, I, I'm always amazed when I see uh, people. On, it's always, I suppose, it's big bikes because they have the capacity, but they've got so much luggage. It's almost like they wear it as a badge of honor that they've got two metal panniers, a, a back, a top box, and then two huge uh, waterproof sacks and things like that. And it's like, whoa, I don't know actually what, what are you carrying in there? <laughs> extra, extra rocks. <laughs> yeah, well, what, what do you actually need that's in those that you couldn't live without? I mean, I don't, maybe I was going too minimalist. I mean, I just had a tent, sleeping bag, a few tools, and a laptop. and uh, when it was cold, I had all my clothes on, so I, I had enough. I just had two very small pannier sacks on either side, some soft luggage, and that was it. So when I see these guys, with, and I think the danger is you buy all the luggage, you buy the metal panniers and the, and the dry bags, and then you, you think, well, I've got to fill them. And you start filling them with all sorts of junk. Right. And you, you don't need that junk. There's nothing more frustrating than being on the road and not being able to find things. And uh, the more you've got, the harder it is to find. I, suppose. Uh, I always remember a guy in Pakistan, he was a coming the other way from Holland to India and really nice chap from we met in Lahore and uh, I, I was on the postie and he was on the GS and we've got a picture of the bike side by side and he got everything I think he, he just got like a huge amount of, of bags and sacks and dry bags and panniers and bless him he, he just was weighted down by the world that he's carrying on his bike and I think you've got to you've just got to streamline it. Take as little as you take as little as possible, really, um, and buy like I say, buy what you what you need. Because wherever you are in the world, you can but you can pretty much buy everything you'll 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 be without. Whether it be a sleeping bag, camping equipment, uh, anything. Uh, I suppose another piece of advice would be took some money away somewhere on your bike. You know, always have uh, some hard currency, some American dollars, ideally. Uh, just have them rolled up and tucked away inside a fairing or a tank bag or somewhere. Because uh, uh, you, you always become reliant on, on cards, debit cards, credit cards, because they seem to work all over the world. But as soon as they get cloned and you don't have access to money, you're down to your last $10 in the middle of Nepal, you kind of need hard currency. And I think that's, that's probably a, a big tip I, I should have told myself before I set off. Yeah, that's a good one. You run into electronic problems, and like you said, I mean, I just just recently had a debit card number stolen, and it stops you in your tracks for a few days until you can get another one in the mail. And we're talking about, you know, Western mail, where the thing will show up yeah. in a couple of days. You might not get one down in, you know, in other countries for another month, you know, if that's what you're relying on, and that's not a good situation to be in. No, no, it's not. I mean, thankfully, there's there's agencies like Western Union that can that can wire your money. Anybody can wire you money to wherever you are in the world, which is another great thing to remember. So on that occasion when I had my cards uh, declined in, in Kathmandu, I, my dad in England was able to wire me some money electronically through to, to Western Union because there was an agency there in Kathmandu. So that helped me out of that situation. But uh, yeah, I should have had some some dollars in the pouch, really. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I think... Uh... I think what makes your story so neat is that you did it in such a small amount of time as far as preparation is concerned in the three days, and it, it really kept you from overpacking. We see that a lot, you know, a lot of stories that we hear people say, well, what's the what's the biggest piece of advice you have? And they'll say, don't take more than you need because I've done it myself. You know, you throw everything on the bike because you think you're going to need it. And then, you know, people that get, you know, on some of these round the world trips, they realize, you know, a quarter of the way through they're they're ditching you know half of the gear and uh it's really cool to to read your story because you didn't have any time to accumulate that kind of stuff it was just a matter of put the bare necessities on the bike and head out and see how it works and obviously it panned out well for you yeah i guess i mean when i did set off i, I set off with everything i am so i did have like 10 pairs of t- 10 t-shirts you know three pair of jeans three pairs of shoes so i crammed all that in uh, to the box I had on the back and, and the other bits and correct the milk crate. I had a milk crate on top of the aluminium box and just stuff that with everything. So after about the first week, I realized I didn't need three pairs of jeans or three pairs of shoes or 10 t-shirts. And I guess over the next, it was probably only by about month eight of nine that I finally got down to a perfect packing list. 
and a backing order. It took me eight, probably took me eight months to get properly organised. I'm a totally disorganised person. I think I think that's probably what surprised people about the fact I'd done it. it was I don't I, I can't plan, I can't organise, I can't. I'm useless at that that, that sort of thing. So <laughs> when when people was when I you know message people saying that you know guess what I'm I'm going to ride home on my bike, especially when my parents got that. When I emailed my parents three days in and said, hey, you know, great news, mum, great, great news, dad, I'm, I'm on my way home, you know, from Australia, but it might take me a while, I'm, I'm coming home on a motorbike. And I think they were, you know, they were like, you'll never make it, you just, you're not, you're too calamitous, you're too disorganized. Well, um, I, I, yeah, think, I, I think you got to give yourself more credit. You, uh, you've put out, uh, two, what, three books now? Um, two, 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 only two. two. One was a different title in Australia. Okay. Um, but you've self-published these two books and that there's a lot that goes into self-publishing your own work. So give, give yourself more credit for, uh, for being organized than you are. (laughs) I'm patting myself on my back. (laughs) Very good. So yeah, the books were, go go on. Sorry, you you go first. I was just saying, let's talk about these books a little bit. The, the book we've been talking about uh, that tells the story about going from Australia to London is the one called Long Ryan Home. Uh, that's the one I've read. I loved it. I tell everybody about it. I think it's just a, it's such a fun story. Um, but you've also done one, you've written one about your ride from New York to Alaska called, uh, running towards the light. I have yet to pick that one up, but it's on my list. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, you know, to be quite brutally honest, after the Sydney London trip and the book came out, I was in a very dark <laughs> pit of despair for about a few years. To I, I was, uh, I was not in a great place. I think because, I think that, and again, coming back to, do you encourage people to do this? No, because I know at the end of a big trip like this is a huge void, which took me ages. Well, I never managed to fill it to be honest, because I spent nine months living a such a passionate life and being I was at my best out on the road on the road I could conquer anything and then I got home and I had I had nowhere to go nowhere to hide I suppose and it took I had this book to write which was massively I'm glad you like it that's I mean it's nice that people like it but it takes a lot out of you writing a book especially when it's a personal book and it's got a message to somebody which I felt mine had and uh, after that I kind of didn't know which way to turn to be honest and I, I kind of got myself into a bit of a, a pickle where I thought, I've just got to get back on the road. I don't know what else to do, but I need to get back on that bike and ride. And uh, with Dorothy, um, fettled up, I had piston, new piston rings, cam chain and clutch plates. I had 500 pounds in my bank and I rode down to Heathrow and I gave my bike to a, a shipping agency I knew of and they shipped it to New York or flew it to New York. And I landed in New York three days later with, with that 500 pounds I didn't know where I was going other than West. West was always my comfort zone. Riding West always felt like naturally a right way to ride. I don't know why, setting sun or whatever, but I felt comfortable riding West. And so we no real plan. I just set off riding West. And the book is just about landing in America with no plan on, on a 37 mile per hour motorbike. And uh, I, I suppose fighting to get back on my feet and make sense of my life and the world and, and America. I mean, America is fascinating. Uh, people say, "Oh, it's only America. How can you can't have an adventure in America?" You know, it's, it's, it's all it's, it's all civilized world. But obviously, people saying that have never been through Detroit, or, St. <laughs> right. or Chicago, or parts of Vegas, or even parts of Seattle, parts of San Francisco, parts of Route 66. I mean, there's there's New York, Brooklyn. I mean, there's so much fascination I found with America. I mean, the, div- the division, the divide, the politics, the religion, uh, racial issues, and, and so to be, so having to take the back roads through this nation, because I couldn't take the interstate, it just it fed me down this route where all I did was encounter really interesting people with really interesting stories, and uh, and then amazing sights, and obviously doing Grand Canyon, uh, Death Valley, uh, the Colorado Monument Valley, Zion, all those places, then up the Oregon coast, which is which was fabulous. I, I mean, that was probably my, my favorite part. And then up through British Columbia in, into Alaska. And just over the border, I didn't get to Prudhoe Bay as I intended because by the time I made it to Skagway, I, I'd had enough. You know, I'd, I'd really felt like I'd seen and ridden enough and that was it. I, felt, 
I think my America trip was trying to find an endpoint, and somehow when I got to Skagway, I'd found it, so that's where I stopped. But uh, yeah, America was uh, was fascinating. I I enjoyed it. I, I hated it, but I enjoyed it but because just the speed of the traffic and uh, like crossing Kansas and places like that on that bike was uh, no not much fun to be honest, just because of the the the, the mileage and the, the speed, like I say, of the traffic. It was, it was a hectic ride, but. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad I did it, and I'd love to see America on a bit on a faster bike, so I can I can take more detours and go off and explore a bit more because I think there's, there's just so much to see. Uh, yeah, fascinating country, and I also like that I could I could talk to people. I mean, obviously, passing through Asia is great. I mean, it's amazing sights, and the people are wonderful. But I can't tell what they're saying, and they can't tell what I'm saying. So uh, apart from like trying to say each other's names, that's about as far as you get. But you pull up in a little town or village in America, and obviously you can talk all day long about whatever's on their mind and whatever's on your mind. So, like I say, in terms of politics, religion, uh, I, I just got the story. I felt like I, I got the story of America. So it was more about the people than it was about the ride. Um, I don't know if that sold the book really that that well, but uh, and it was just about me getting getting my mind straight. I uh, I needed to do that ride. At the beginning of it, I felt like shit. I don't know if I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to I don't know if I swear, but I felt really bad at the beginning. By the end of it, I felt better. And I think that's what big trips are all about. You know, that's why you do That's why you do these big journeys, I think. Uh, from the people I always met on the big trips in the middle of nowhere, they would always be on a journey of some sort. They would always be coming from a place they weren't happy in. Um, they, were, they were trying to get to a better place. I think that, and that's the point of traveling. That's why you travel. Because you're not content with where you are, and you need to you move forward. And uh, I was traveling on a motorbike or whatever other means is a, is a good way of doing that. But uh, yeah, I met some. I think that's what the, the stories of the other travelers always uh, fascinated me. You know, the, the, the Dutch guy in Pakistan with the, the overloaded bike—he was escaping, you know, his, his kids who decided to live with his mo- mother after the divorce, and uh, that was—he just needed to get on a bike and ride. And I could understand that guy, and then. There was, uh, a girl I met in Indonesia, and she was uh, escaping the uh, the fact that her family had disowned her because she didn't want to practice the same religion as they did. So, like I say, there's always there's always very personal, deep reasons behind a lot of these big trips, which I think a lot of people overlook, and they kind of simplify it and just say, "Yeah, it's a big trip. How how nice? We'll get some pretty postcards and nice pictures of exotic places." But deep down, there's always a really personal story to these big trips. Yeah, and I think that's the uh, neatest part about talking to people on the trips is digging in and finding out why they're on it. Um, like you said, it's not just superficial. There's always a reason, you know. It's uh, it's about yeah, exploring new frontiers or leaving old ones one way or another. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how that book's, that book's not been – I think Sydney, London sounds more dramatic and more uh, exciting to read. So the American ones have kind of even been overlooked now. It's my newer book, but more people are buying the first one still. I don't kind of know. I suppose I've got to ride somewhere more exotic to sell more books. <laughs> well, it's the uh, one you're known for. It's the one everybody uh, I guess. Uh, they understand. They hear about whatnot, and uh, and but hopefully by hearing some <coughs> podcasts like these and hearing your story and uh, you know get the word out about the second book, I I know that I want to pick it up, and I think you've enticed me to to go pick up some little little CT and, and tour part of my country with that thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you should get one. They're, they're good bikes. Maybe I can go find my old one and get that one back. Yeah, well, you should. Because they're very cool in America. They've got the uh, quick-release headstocks and the, uh, uh, what do you call it? They've got the um, high-low gear ratios and things on, on the American version, which the Australian post bike doesn't have. So. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I'd love an American one. You know, uh, a few get imported over to the UK, but they, they fetch quite a lot of money, £2,000 at least. Right, right. About $2,800, which, uh, yeah, it's a lot of money for you know, yeah. an old, <laughs> old CT. In his first book, Sydney to London, The Long Ride Home, Nathan Millward writes about his nine-month, 23,000-mile journey across the world on a 105cc postal carrier bike. However, that wasn't enough adventure for Nathan, so he again headed out on another adventure of 8,000 miles across America and wrote about that trip in his second book, 
Running Towards Delight, Postcards from Alaska. Pick up these two great books and get inspired to set out on your next adventure. You can find Nathan's books at www.nathanmillward.com, as well as the Amazon bookstore in your Kindle. Do you love mountains? You are not alone. Jerry Roach is well known for his extraordinary and detailed guidebook, Colorado 14ers. But did you know that Jerry has written 15 books, including guidebooks to 13ers, Indian Peaks, Rocky Mountain National Park, and more? But he has also written narratives about a lifetime of mountaineering full of Jerry's insights and humor. If you like adventure, then these books are for you. Jerry Roach's books can be purchased at his website, summitsite.com. That's S-U-M-M-I-T-S-I-G-H-T dot com, as well as on Amazon and in bookstores near you. So what was the craziest experience of the trip? If you had to choose one, what would it be? Craziest experience? I mean, it's a toss-up between getting uh, impacted by two buses at the same time on either side of me at high speed which in Indonesia, which scared the life out of me. Really? Yeah. Two buses? Yeah, one going one way and one going the other way, me squeezing in between, doing about like 40 miles an hour. And I'd overtook and shouldn't have overtook really. And then... As the other bus came the other way, I had no choice but to squeeze into the bus I was overtaking. And the other bus squeeze literally was look, luckily I had met very industrial pannier frames, which took the brunt of the impact to be honest, yeah. and protected my legs. But uh, they really took deep, deep, deep gouges out of the the trucks, the coaches going in opposite directions. That yeah, that was probably the the gnarliest uh, heart in my mouth moment. Um, now, did I these guys we, stop, or did they just carry no, on? No, no, we just all kept, going. We all <laughs> kept on going. I, I just carried on. I thought, I'm not stopping. I'm not getting, in, I'm not, I'm not getting involved. I mean, I was, I was shaken up and uh, a bit edgy, but uh, I thought, I'll just keep going. And it was only later when I realized it, it really mangled the pannier racks. It did. And there were paint from both vehicles on either side of the pannier racks. I, re- I must really, I felt bad, to be honest. I'd probably just put a real nasty mark down both sides of these, these vehicles. Well, my and guess my is that wasn't the well. first time something like that's happened to them, though. Probably not. No, no, I know. But I still I felt a bit bad. Um, <laughs> I think the gnarliest one was doing the Manali Lay Highway in India, northern India, over the Himalayas. That was that was uh, that was the second highest road in the world at five thousand three hundred and twenty-eight twenty-eight meters or eighteen thousand five hundred feet or so, and uh, that was pushing the bike up a lot, of, a lot up a lot of it. And obviously, that, at that altitude, you. You're not feeling too great yourself, and the bike's certainly struggling. The bike's not got the bike doesn't have enough power to propel it. The it's the bike and, and you, so you literally have to get off and just run it up in flat out in first, and you're just running and pushing alongside it. That road was was a challenge, a big challenge. It was cold, and the surfaces is terrible. There's waterfalls you have to sort of wade through, and um. It was a. It was, it was probably the biggest test for the bike. I would, I would imagine, uh, but I needed to see if I could conquer that height in India before I went to, to conquer the similar height in Pakistan. That was kind of the altitude training for Pakistan. So there was a lot of pressure on doing that, doing that that route really. Because if I couldn't have got the bike over that sort of altitude, I was really uh, stuck as to where I could have gone next. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like a more of a test for man than it does machine at that point. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah, it takes it out of you. But I mean, it, it, it's it's fun when you get to the end. It's fun. It's <laughs> That's not, right. Not, at the time, it's not fun. But I had to do the same over over the Rockies in Colorado, just because of the altitude and the inclines there. So did you? I got it's a good way of getting fit, really, by taking a small slow bike. It's actually a good exercise. Yeah, that's a good point yeah, because you can push it so much. It's, uh, where did you cross the Rockies? Uh, I was in Colorado Springs and then went over, I think I joined the the, the TAP, the Trans-American Trail, over through to Silverton. Yep. And then down to Durango. Okay, beautiful yeah. area. Yeah, I loved it through there. I mean, that was, to be honest, America from New York to Kansas 
had not been as enjoyable as I had hoped it to be just because of the speed of the traffic and the intensity of the, the towns and the suburbs and, uh, and all that. But once I got to Colorado, it was, you know, it was immense. Uh, to live in that area and have that uh, sort of uh, terrain on your doorstep must be amazing. I mean, in the UK, well, we've got some amazing terrain, but not there's not very little of it now that's legal to ride on. You can't uh, you can't stitch together huge mile, mileage off road just because it doesn't exist anymore uh, as a legal network. It's uh, it can be quite frustrating as an off road rider over in the UK. But, uh, obviously, in, in America and Colorado specifically, the, the the endless trails that you can go on, it you know, must be must be brilliant to, to be able to explore that with a bit more leisure than I had. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good place to own motorcycles, I, I can say. Well, I'll make you a deal if uh, if and when you get back out here to America, whether you're on the, the CT or on the, the GS, uh, look me up. I'll I'll take you on the best roads in Colorado. And uh, as long as you take me on the best roads out where you are when I get out there. Yep, you do. You're on. You're on. <laughs> Great. So what's next? What's on the horizon? What are you working on? Uh, I do freelance magazine work over here at the minute. Um, that's sort of keeping me uh, my head above water. Um, I think I think that's probably uh, where I'm struggling. I don't I don't know what's what's next. I, I, I mean, people suggest it's going to be another big trip, but I don't think I want another big trip. I don't want another endless few months on the on the road living in tents and things. I, I kind of enjoying. I moved into suburbia now. I moved in with my girlfriend, and we've got a place together. And got a garage, which is nice. And, so maybe I'll settle down. So I'm probably trying to discover how you have adventures on a more uh, manageable, smaller scale. Um, so be it weekends or, or weeks away and, and do it two up. I mean, if we're going to do America again, I, the t- intention was to do it two up. So hopefully, you know, share that, share those experiences. Uh, I know for me, when I crossed America, places like Monument Valley, Grand Canyon, fascinating, beautiful places. Uh, but at the same time, you get there on your own, you know, and you have a look at it, you take a photo, and then there's not much else to do but carry on riding. So, right. I know it's just tough. You, you can sit around and you can enjoy it and you can share it and have I, I, I somebody to remember it with. So I think the intention moving forward is to maybe have a two-up adventure, two-up motorcycle trip. won't be as adventurous as Sydney to London, but then again, I don't really want to do that. I won't want to do that again anyway. Um. Sustainable adventure, I suppose, is the is the ultimate goal. Yeah, I, I can see that. I uh, I look forward to the day when my wife hops on the back, you know, after the kids are grown and gone, and and we tour some of that stuff together. Because you're right, it's a it's a totally different way to do it. It's nice to do on your own, um, but at the same time, if you're there with uh, with somebody you love to share it with, it's even better. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I I spent a bit of time, well, quite a bit of time in Australia on my own. And- Obviously, it's great, but then I went back earlier this year with my partner, and we did it in a camper van, not you know even a motorcycle, but a camper van down the east coast and through a bit of the outback. That was a, it's a much more enjoyable time, much more um, probably not as adventurous, but in terms of enjoyment and memories, it was uh, it was good. Yeah. If we can do some something similar in America, but probably on a bike this time, then uh, I think that yeah, that'd be the ideal. Right. Well, I think that if you if you never do one of these big 18 country journeys, I think you're allowed because your resume looks just fine when it comes to adventure travel at this point. Oh, that's kind. That's kind. But uh, <laughs> I always say it's people come up to me at shows and things and say, oh, you know, I've done a few bits of tri- trips, but nothing compared to what you've done. I, it kind of annoys me, upsets me when people say that. It's uh, Trips are trips, aren't they? And adventures are adventures. And mine just happened to be X amount of miles over X amount of months. It's uh, it's kind of all relative to where you are. And as long as you're getting out there and doing stuff, I, I don't think it matters really how, how long or how far. It's uh, I wish these people who you know they'll say, "Oh, I've only ridden around France," but France is exciting. I mean, it's a good place to ride. I should be more proud of where they've gone rather than comparing it to where I've gone. Um, there's a lot of willy waving, I think, with motorcycle adventure bike riding. You know? Right, right. All about how far you've ridden and how many miles, and kind of defeats it. It's not the point. Not the point. It's about getting out on a bike. You know, even if it's only for a day or a weekend, it's just getting out on a bike and doing something on a bike. You know? We're sort of getting lost a little bit in this uh, this scene of big bikes, big trips, 
the adventure image, getting a bit lost. It's all, and the day it's about motorcycle and uh, exploring and testing yourself, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's not about how you get out there. It's just about getting out there. If you can only do it for a day or a weekend, just make sure you're getting out there. We can read about other people doing it, but that's not an adventure. The adventure is actually getting out there and having a little fun with it. If uh, if you're not at least partaking in, in a day or two here or there, then you're missing out on it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the reality is for most people, they can't take off for nine months and ride around the world or wherever. You've got kids, mortgages, jobs. So a week, a weekend, two weeks is as much as you've got. So it's, uh, I think it's about getting the most out of that time rather than wishing for the day that you'll get to do your round-the-world trip. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about where people can find your book. Um, where are you most active? Website, Facebook? Uh, Kindle's probably always the easiest because that's on Amazon, easy enough. Um, I must admit, being a self-published author, is distribution is always the biggest hurdle um if people go so getting the books in the uk is easy enough on amazon uh or my website www.nathanmillward.com that's i mean even if just one people want to see photos and a few videos of my trip uh, there's uh, there's uh, some photos on there um people can go to in terms of books from people in, uh, in north america you can order it directly from my website and there's a there's just a the, a selection for overseas post it obviously just adds a bit on overseas postage, but uh, um, all books come from me. I, I, I sign them and wrap them, and I, I also do a little uh, draw, a personalized drawing on them. And um, do a, you know, I've got a town with it, so I don't do many volume, but I, I, I try to put a bit of personal touch, touch to it. Um, uh, that's my next job, actually, to try and get a few, try and get some distribution over in the US. Um, that's my next job, but it's, yeah, it's never easy with books. I, I think that's. I was the book was originally published by Arthur Collins in Australia. Now it was a very interesting experience to go to go through what would I consider to be a dream opportunity to write a book for a publisher, a major publisher like Arthur Collins in Australia. And the, um, I think what you realise is an independent traveller, you don't like handing over full control to a, a big corporation to turn your book into whatever they want to turn it into. Which is why ultimately I've ended up self-publishing because I just couldn't, I couldn't give my story away, I couldn't give my book away to this uh, this big entity. Um, so self-publishing is a lot is a lot much more much more hard work, um, but at least you get to retain control. Uh, I think for a stubborn stubborn person like me, I think that's kind of more important than selling volume. Uh, but sadly, it never make you rich. But, uh, well, you never That's know. Right. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> you well, never know. Good for you for enduring the pain of self-publishing. Um, I hope it pays off for you. I can understand the whole part about wanting to control your trip and control your story. Uh, you don't you don't take a, an adventure like that only to have somebody else, you know, ride the bike for you. You know, per se. You know, you need you need to write this way or go that way. You know. To be able to self-publish lets you keep all of that to yourself and make keep it truly yours. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, uh, but then again, if I think if a publisher came in and offered to take it off my hands, I'd probably say yeah. To be honest, I think I'm because I think the problem with that, writing a book is that you're always telling the same story. You always get stuck in the past. You're almost stuck in the past retelling the old story. Yeah. Sometimes it can be at the cost of doing a new story or a new trip. Now, instead of being out doing a new trip, you're at shows selling books about your old trip. Yeah, that's which is true. Great, but you're not doing, you're not moving forward. You know, I think uh, a book can really keep changing to the past. I think that's partially why I did the America trip because I needed to move on from Sydney to London. You know, I talked about it, I wrote about it, and I was sick of talking about it. And I was sick of being asked about it, so I thought I need, I need to do another trip. Sadly, after I've done America, people still ask me about Sydney to London. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, keep we'll keep them up. <laughs> exactly. Keep them coming. I I enjoyed the book. I I really look forward. You're going to see a uh, a purchase come through for uh for the book um about the uh the New York to Alaska here in a few minutes. I'm going to make my purchase because I do want to read it, and I encourage everybody else to get out there, get both books. Once you get the first one, you're going to want the second one anyway. So might as well uh, throw them both in the basket at the same time. 
can I warn you though that I I had an email back from somebody in America who read that book and said I didn't realize you hated America that much and <laughs> I, 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 was, I was like I, I certainly don't but as a traveler passing through it you you write what you see and you write what you feel and what write what you encounter not everything not everything is positive some of it's negative some of it is you know it is and uh, that's say wherever you ride whether it be riding through England or America or India or Pakistan or whatever. So it's, I don't know, I don't want anybody to send me hate mail. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, it's just an honest account. So please don't, please take it with a, almost a pinch of salt. Well, if people read it and they don't like what I've said, I didn't, I've never meant to cause any offence. But That's just, funny. You know, right as you see it, don't you? And, uh, well, that's part of these these trips. That's part of the adventure. It's not all um, it's not all diamonds and glitter. There are upsides and downsides, and it's it's society and it's geography. Not everything is rosy, you know. We if we we tell what we see, that to me makes a good book. You know, I I would never claim to think that you riding through America is is supposed to come out all rosy and sweet smelling. I expect to hear the downsides of the trip too. So I hope that most people would have enough maturity to take it that way at the same time. I hope so. I mean I'll offer full refunds to anybody who is super offended. <laughs> That's funny. Hey, refunds like calls me a rude name or refund them. <laughs> funny all right um you're making me laugh so that makes me think we need to have a funny story to leave the uh leave the show with i, so. I don't do funny stories oh come on you got a good i don't have any <laughs> funny story can i tell you a nice story instead okay you can tell me a nice story okay i'll tell you a nice story in wichita i was riding through wichita and I was religiously because I was on such a strict budget. I was eating in McDonald's, so twice a day I would stop at McDonald's and have a, a dollar, co- a ninety-nine cents coffee and a dollar seventeen cheeseburger. So two of those a day. That, w- that was keeping me going. Wow. In Wichita, about yeah, I, was, I know. <laughs> like I say, I was on a budget, but it got free Wi-Fi. That's the beauty of McDonald's, you see. Everybody says, "Why do you go to McDonald's? Because you get a dollar, you get a che- uh, coffee for a dollar and free Wi-Fi." So, anyway. I was in Wichita at about six o'clock at night getting my evening coffee and cheeseburger before riding on to camp wild out somewhere beyond Wichita by the side of the road or whatever. And there was this uh, Taiwanese guy in front of me in the queue who said, is that your bike outside? I said, yeah, he got talking. He said, where are you going to sleep tonight? I said, um, in a bush outside of town somewhere, I don't know, <laughs> by the road, somewhere like that. He said he was traveling with his son to San Francisco. He was going to college there. And he said, no, he says, as a father with a son, uh, I can't allow that. He said, follow me to the Best Western over the road from McDonald's. He said, I'm going to pay for a room in the hotel for you. Oh, that's awesome. You can't do that. I said, you can't do that. So I was like, there's no need. I mean, in fairness, the previous night I slept in a dried up riverbed. It was the most miserable night I'd had on the road for a long time. And uh, he said, no, no. And he led me across the road and he went to reception. he paid this, it turned out to be $160. And he came out with a key card for the room. He said, well, I, I don't want to see you, you know, you'll not, you'll not see him again. I don't want you to have dinner with us tonight. I don't want to, any gratitude. I just want you to, you know, get a wash and clean up and uh, have a safe journey. And uh, with that, he went off on his way. And I had this uh, like a luxurious twin bed um, hotel room in, in Wichita in Best Western from a complete stranger I didn't even remember his name or anything and uh, I think I know it's not a funny story but it was a memory that uh, sums up my trip across America no That's I was just going to say that beats a funny story so I appreciate you diverting from the format and, and telling me that one yeah it warms my heart a little bit that I, I mean I'm, people say well I travel or whatever but it's for those reasons you know, what, a, what an occasion I never, I'll never forget that chap amazing no, no so much money he spent on that room yeah he didn't have to did he he didn't have to give me anything no no that's that's great and for every 10 bad stories one good story like that more than makes up for it yeah yeah i actually think there's more good stories than bad that actually, on, on the from the road well i would hope so yeah i think so i would hope so, so. from all other travelers and things like that <laughs> that's good yeah 
Anyway. Right, that was, that was, sorry, that, I know it was, like I said, I, don't, I just don't do funny stories. I, can't think, I can never think of any. That's okay. We're willing to roll with the punches. Okay. Well, we'll get your website and your uh, name of your book and where they can find you and all that stuff up on the show notes. And I hope that people take advantage of going and uh, contacting Nathan and, and getting these books because I, you know, truly from the, the bottom of my heart, I, I really do love the story. And that's why I reached out to you to, to get you on the show because I wanted our listeners to hear your story. That's kind. Yeah. Thank, thanks for that. Thanks for getting in touch about it. Yeah. All right, yeah, Nathan. Thanks. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk with me today, and uh, I hope we'll be in touch. I'd like to see you out here in Colorado. Yeah, definitely. This summer, eh? Uh, August, I think. All right. Let's do it. All right. See you there. <laughs> All right. Thank you. All right, mate. See ya. Would you like to be a guest on our show? Just go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click contact us. And don't forget to find the click to call button on the Adventure Sports Podcast website and tell us your awesome story about your amazing adventure. And don't worry, the voicemail is fully automated. You won't be talking to any humans. <laughs> <laughs>